invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, I want to read the entire psalm with you. This is the word of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me and shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Thus far, would you then also turn with me to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 45. You'll find that on page 893 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. Lord's Day 45, question and answer 116, 17, 18, and 19. I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. The question is asked, why do Christians need to pray? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. And also because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts and thank him for them. How does God want us to pray so that he will listen to me or to us? First, we must pray from the heart to no other God than the one true God who has revealed himself to us in his word, asking for everything he has commanded us to ask of him. Second, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. Third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation even though we do not deserve it God will surely listen to our prayers because of Christ our Lord as he has promised us in his word. What has God commanded us to ask of him? 
everything we need spiritually and physically as embraced in the prayer Christ himself has taught us. And what is this prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread but for, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it in the creeds and the confessions of the church. May God once again add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered with me here in Bowmanville this afternoon. Over the years it has been my great privilege to instruct the youth of the church, the great doctrines of grace as formulated in the creeds and confessions of the church. And it's, and it's a task that I look forward to every season again because I love the kids, but I also I love the doctrines that I'm called upon to teach. And I love to work with the young, impressionable hearts and minds. But in addition to teaching catechism, I insisted of my students that they would lead the class in closing prayer. I would warn them a week in advance, and in turn, alphabetically, they would be assigned the task, and I would instruct them that I needed them to incorporate something of what they had learned in their lesson that evening into that closing prayer. What I'm doing, of course, is simply trying to teach them to pray. To not only pray from the heart, but also to pray according to knowledge. I trust that you as parents are assisting your catechism teachers in that work by teaching your children at home. There's always been a need for instruction with regards to the holy art of prayer. People do simply not wake up one morning knowing how to pray. It's something that needs to be learned, and consequently it is something that needs to be taught. Why, even the disciples themselves recognized that, and, and they went to Christ and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. I remember well the first term I was ordained as an elder in one of the churches in St. Catherine's as a young man of 25 years old. I dreaded that day when I would be called upon to offer the opening prayer at a consistory meeting or at a, at a even Sunday morning service before church. People do not wake up knowing how to pray. They need to learn. They need to be taught. Even our, the disciples themselves said, Lord, teach us to pray. And that ability to pray, especially the ability to pray in a manner that pleases God, is not something that each Christian is born with. It's something that needs to be taught, it's something that needs to be learned, beginning at a very young age, and it is an obligation of parents to see to it that their children do learn to pray and learn to pray aright. And now here in Lord's Day 45, the Catechism instructs us in order that we might teach one another in order that we might teach our children, in order that we ourselves might learn this holy art of prayer. The confession this afternoon gives us a summary of our Lord's instruction with regards to the prayers of a Christian. Congregation, it's not unusual to hear prayers which are offensive to us. 
Imagine then how they must sound in the ears of a thrice holy God who has given specific instructions as to how we are to come to him in prayer. For instance, this is an extreme example, but some time ago I read of a woman in Washington State who was convinced that she could raise the dead through prayer. And when her roommate died, (coughs) she kept the body in her apartment for 18 months. And all the time she tried to raise to life through prayer, this roommate. And when the body was finally discovered, she informed the authorities that she had stayed awake for most nights, praying, sincerely praying, that God would raise the corpse. The woman was very sincere, but she was sincerely wrong about prayer. And tragically, no one had taught her or someone had wrongly taught her. And this, of course, was an extreme case. However, it is not at all unusual to find people who have eagerly, earnestly prayed, but these sincere people had a zeal without knowledge and consequently they did not pray in accordance with the norms of true prayer as given us in Scripture. And then when their prayers were not answered in accordance with their expectations, They gave up hope. They abandoned their prayers and they believed they had lost their faith, not only in prayer, but even their faith in God. So obviously then to know why we are to pray and to know how we are to pray is an urgent question. And the catechism helps us in our instruction this afternoon. Along with his disciples, we are brought this afternoon to Jesus Christ to ask of him, Lord, teach us how to pray. I administer God's word to you this afternoon using as my theme prayer as the Christian's source of life. We want to follow the leading of the catechism. We will ask and answer the question, why should the Christian pray? And secondly, what is the right manner of prayer? So prayer as the Christian's source of life, why the Christian should pray, and the right manner or how the Christian should pray. The first question insists of us to consider why. The question reads, why is it necessary for Christians to pray? And the answer is summed up in one word, gratitude. We read prayer as the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us. It is required then, but it is required, (coughs) prayer is required, but it is required as an expression of thankfulness. In the Gospel of Luke, we read the story that one day ten lepers came to Christ in their pathetic condition, begging of him to have compassion on them. And in his goodness, his love, and his mercy, Christ healed them of their disease. And sometime later, one man came back to thank God for his healing mercy. Jesus looks at the man and said, Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Were there no more found that would return to give glory to God for his mercy? And we need to see our gratitude in that light. Jesus teaches that all men are to give glory to God also in prayer for the many blessings he has granted us. All that we have, excluding nothing, all that we have, including life itself, is only because we have first of all received it from God. (coughs) As the Christian hymn writer pens it so eloquently, we give thee but thine own, whate'er that gift may be, all that we have is thine alone. A trust, O Lord, from thee. Every good and perfect gift comes from God Almighty, who freely dispenses his blessing upon men. Does he then not have the right to expect thanks from us? 
But follow with me. As we said, it is the duty of all men to thank God in prayer. But those who have been redeemed by his grace ought most of all to come to him in prayers of thanksgiving. When we search the scriptures, then we see how often God's redeemed children are commanded and encouraged to thank him for their, for their, for their very salvation. Psalm 107, oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Consider that with me for a moment. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, for he has delivered them out of the hands of the enemy. What then are we to thank God for? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, for he has delivered them from the hands of the enemy. Think with me. Each of us, young and old, great and small, we were children of wrath. We came into this world belonging to our father, the devil. Each of us were under the power of sin and death. Each of us stood condemned. We, con we admit that already at the baptismal font, that this little child conceived and born in sin, worthy of all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself. This child already lost unless God redeems it. So each of us were under the power of sin. Each of us stood condemned, worthy of all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself. There was nothing we could do about that. There was nothing we would do about that. <coughs> and left on our own without <coughs> divine intervention, every single one of us would have been eternally lost. But, but, but we were not left on our own. We were not left on that road to destruction. We were not left on that road to hell, no. God intervened. In his great love and mercy, God interrupted us on our road and God redeemed us, not with silver nor with gold, but with the precious blood of his precious son. We heard that this morning. He delivered us from the snares of death. He rescued us from the clutches of the prince of darkness and he gave us into the hands of his risen son in whom we now have, have, not maybe we'll receive, but we now have redemption and forgiveness of sin. Think of that with me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was born a child of Adam. I am now a child of God. Not because I deserved it. Not because I chose it. Oh, I deserve to be lost. I was guilty of my sin. But God in his great love rescued me, found me and saved me, redeemed me. With cords of love, he opened my heart, unplugged my ears to the gospel message. He illumined my eyes, long closed by sin, and he enabled me to hear and to see the Lord Jesus Christ and my need of him. Is that then not something worthy of thanksgiving? People got, once again, I struggle with words to adequately express to you the great love that the Father has for us, in that he did not spare his only begotten Son, but freely gave him up for us all. His death for our life. Is he then not deserving of our prayers of thanksgiving? Do we then not owe him our thanks for the free gift of so great a salvation? Congregation, the catechism here has well captured the biblical emphasis on prayer as thanksgiving. But when we then look at the whole question of prayer in the life of the Christian, then we see immediately that prayer is intended not first of all for us to ask for something for ourselves. No, it is first of all to be taken as an opportunity for the redeemed of the Lord to say so. 
It is an opportunity to be taken and well used to, to give thanks for what we have already received. Prayer must be used to give thanks to our Heavenly Father who has already pardoned us from all of our sin and has already received us as his own children. God is good indeed, and therefore we must give thanks in God-honoring prayer. We pray in the first instance not to ask God for something more, but to praise and to thank him for what he has already done. We need to think about that the next time we come to God in prayer with a shopping list for ourselves and nothing more. That's not true prayer. True prayer starts with praise and thanksgiving. Without that element, it's not prayer. Prayer is the chief part of our thankfulness to God. That, first of all. But then as we continue to read the confession, we read that prayer is necessary because it is the God-ordained means to receive the blessings that God has appointed for us. It's important that we understand this. You see, there are people who ask the question, why pray? If God is almighty, and he is, if God is omnipotent, and he is, if God is all-knowing, and he is, if God knows what we need, and he does, in fact, if God knows what we need even better than we do, why pray? Logically, that might make sense. Our Lord in Matthew, at Matthew 6, anticipated the question. He says, your father knows your needs before you ask it of him. In other words, we are not to pray as if God needs to be persuaded or informed of our wants and or our needs. Neither are we to argue with God as if he needs to be persuaded of our needs. I sometimes get uncomfortable when I hear of huge concentrated efforts to garner much prayer from many people for a certain cause. I can't tell you how many times I received the phone call, would I join with this group in a large chain prayer? We, could, we, we seem to think that there's a greater chance of God hearing the more people we can gather together to offer more prayer. Yet the scripture says that the prayers of the righteous avail much. In other words, the prayers of one righteous person are as effective as a hundred and more effective than a million unrighteous. Now we must pray to God as our Father who knows all of our needs and is willing and able to grant them. In other words, then, prayer is the means. It is the means, the vehicle, by which we are to obtain the blessings which God intends to give us. Follow with me for a minute now. We confess that the prayer is the means by which God grants his grace. In fact, we confess it here in even stronger language. We read here that the Bible teaches that God grants his grace. Hear me well. God grants his grace only to those who seek it in prayer. We need to underscore every word, every syllable here. God grants his grace only to those who seek it in prayer. Congregation, we need to see the connection between a strong, vibrant faith and a disciplined prayer life. It's not uncommon to meet people who fail to correctly see that relationship. I frequently am met by people who, who privately tell me that they, they lament about their apparent lack of eternal security, assurance of salvation. They're just not so sure. Or as they tell me, they're genuinely grieved about the shallowness, shallowness of, their, of their faith life. 
They want it to be strong and healthy and deep and meaningful, and yet it seems also superficial. But when I then ask them about their prayer life, they hang their heads and they sheepishly, quietly confess that it's almost non-existent. Ah, oh, people got that's where it's got to start. On your knees. No amount of religious exercise can take the place of holy communion with God. And the answer to that is found here in our confession. God grants his grace. God grants his grace only to those who seek it in prayer and thank him for it. People of God, walk with me. And as Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind with me as we work this out together. The truth being confessed here affords us a tremendous comfort. But it is a comfort that is lost and squandered if we fail to understand correctly, precisely, what it is that is being confessed. Follow with me. How often does it not happen that we lack something or we miss something of our great joy in the Lord? Could it be that, that some of that is due to the fact that we have not understood what the scripture teaches us concerning the relationship between prayer and spiritual joy? Follow with me. You see, when we say that God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who ask him for it in prayer, then we mean by that that the Christian who asks it of God will receive a conscious awareness of his blessedness in Christ. To ask God for his grace and spirit means to ask him to grant us the conscious awareness to consciously taste and to experience his grace and his spirit. So often we lack the true joy of salvation, but God will grant it to us, but only if we ask it of him in prayer. Congregation, to use the language of the canons of Dort, <coughs> albeit in somewhat of a different context, God does not treat us as senseless stocks and blocks. Allow me an illustration here. Someone who is not consciously aware of their condition, or perhaps better yet, <coughs> someone who is unconscious, receives certain things or certain treatments in a hospital, and he receives them for his good, but he's not aware of receiving them. For instance, a patient in a hospital bed who is unconscious still receives food and nourishment. It's fed to him intravenously, and although the patient benefits from it, the patient is not aware of his benefit. And sometimes I fear that Christians function that way. They have received and continue to receive God's grace and spirit, but they are hardly aware of it, and so much authentic joy in the Lord escapes them because of it. To correct that tragedy, the Catechism addresses the matter. The Catechism instructs us and warns us to learn that if we will but ask, if we will but go to God in prayer, if we will but go to him seeking a greater measure of his grace and spirit, then the Lord in love makes us consciously aware of his sacred presence in our hearts and in our lives. Christ has taught us, ask and it shall be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. Oh, indeed, the Lord regenerates his people by the power of his irresistible grace. God calls men and women out of darkness into his marvelous light by the explosive power of his almighty grace. And indeed, it is true that the elect of God are completely passive in this process. 
They, continue, they contribute precisely nothing to that great gift of God. We read, that, we read that Lydia first heard the gospel and presented by Paul only after the Lord had first opened her heart. That is still true for everyone who is born again. The Lord must do it, and he does do it, and he does so without our aid. However, once having come to know the Lord, as far as our enjoying and experiencing the blessings of that gift of faith, then God does not treat us as stocks and blocks. Oh no, the Lord works in our hearts. He makes us hungry. He makes us thirsty. He causes us to cry out to him in prayer. He draws us to the fountain of living waters in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it is now to that end that the Lord requires our prayers. Why pray? That God's name may be glorified and that our own faith may be strengthened. Through prayer, God convicts us of our sin. He convinces us of our redemption. Through prayer, God convicts us of our sin, convinces us of redemption, and God persuades us that we are no longer our own, but that we now body and soul and life and in death belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all our sin. Through prayer, the Christian is convinced that nothing, through prayer, the Christian is convinced that, that nothing, not the gates of hell nor Satan himself, can ever snatch us out of the Father's hand. The Bible teaches that God will give us all things necessary for body and soul if we but earnestly ask him for it. Do we not remember Christ instructing us, ask and it will be given, knock and it will be opened, seek and you shall find. <coughs> Further, does God's word not instruct us that the Lord is near to those who call upon him in truth? And are we not taught that the Lord is found by those who seek him with all of their hearts? <coughs> congregation those are promises of God those are promises that you can stand on those are promises that you can claim as your own the Lord draws near to those who call upon him in truth don't you see it then if your faith seems empty or superficial or shallow if you earnestly desire a closer stronger or more intimate relationship with God through Christ then this is the way the first way, the only way to God, through prayer. People, sometimes you hear people say that they find themselves too, too busy to pray. I, I have seen that, to, to my dismay, I have seen that even within the church. Martin Luther used to write, if he did not have three hours a day to pray, he was too busy. Three hours. Sometimes we can hardly find three minutes. Even within the church, we see a disciplined prayer life beginning to decline. Regular and disciplined prayer is waning in many quarters. Oh, we have all of the best of intentions, but I'm so busy and so often I forget and I fall asleep. People of God, it may not be so among us. It is extremely costly to neglect our regular and genuine prayer. For you see, to do so is to cut ourselves off from the blessings that God has promised. See to it then that we do not neglect such a precious gift and obligation. People, what I'm trying to impress upon you is that praying increases our faith. Praying strengthens our faith. Prayer builds up our hope 
in the promises of God. Prayer lifts up our minds away from the cares of this world and fixes our minds upon God and heaven. We need to remind ourselves that when we pray, we are talking to our Father in heaven. And then remember also that he has promised to hear us. You will then discover to your own amazement the tremendous comfort and blessing granted your weary soul as you pour out your heart to him in prayer. Look then to him. Cry out to him in prayer. He invites you. No, no, no. He commands you. He commands you to cast all of your cares and your burdens upon him. Prayer is an effective means of restoring strength and hope in our hearts because God has promised to hear you when you pray. Then finally, at the catechism wants us to consider how we are to pray, and then we are given instruction in the next answer. Congregation, as strange as this may sound in our ears, there are prayers offered that God does not hear. It's been my experience, as I am sure it has also been yours, that we have sat in the presence of someone offering prayer that was offensive to us. The petitioner had not learned the proper manner of prayer, and such prayer is then an offense to God. Jesus instructs us and his disciples as to what elements belong to prayer that is pleasing to God and consequently will be heard by God. We read, first of all, that our prayers must be from the heart. The prayers of the Pharisees, you will remember, were not heard because they were insincere. Their prayers never reached the throne of grace in the same way God also often rejected the prayers of Israel because of their own insincerity. They, as the Bible tells us, they honored God with their lips, but not with their hearts. And the Lord in anger rebuked them, crying out, Where is my honor in your prayers? So what belongs to the kind of prayer that God will hear? First of all, it must be from the heart, but also it must be directed to the only true God. As he has revealed himself in Scripture, congregation, God is not an idol. In the world there are millions upon millions of Buddhists and Mohammedans and Hindus and others, and, and each of these religions participate in a strong prayer life, but to their God. There are millions of people who fervently pray to these gods, and yet they pray to an idol. And we may not participate in their prayers with them. Remember the prayers of the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. They prayed frantically from morning to noon, and yet their prayer was not heard, and neither was Elijah impressed, nor did he silently or reverently allow them to pray to their false god, as we are wont to do. You know the story. He taunted them. He ridiculed them. He ridiculed their prayers, saying, perhaps your God is busy. Perhaps he's away on a journey, or maybe he's asleep. Try shouting louder. Perhaps he will hear you. <coughs> Do you really think, then, that God is pleased with our politeness when we silently stand by and allow others to pray to a false God? Oh, the scripture wants us to know better. And to that thought, the catechism instructs us this afternoon to idly stand by while others, no matter how sincere, offer prayers to a God different from the God as he is revealed in the scripture, constitutes sin. An even greater sin is to join with them in a false piety or compromise or tolerance. No, as Elijah, we are to speak out that such prayer will not even be heard by God for they are offered to a false God. A second mark of prayer that pleases God is our 
humility and reverence. When we pray, we must always remember that distinction between the creature and the creator. We must remember that we are redeemed sinners whose only claim to be heard is the grace and the mercy of God to whom we pray. We need to remember that we speak to an awesome, we heard it this morning, an awesome, majestic, and a thrice holy creator, the ruler of the universe. Prayer, prayer is not prayer is not the easy conversation between two good neighbors. It's not a loose dialogue between two good friends. Oh, indeed, God is your friend in a certain sense, but he's not your buddy. And neither may we address him as such. He is the Holy One of Israel. First of all, he is God. Moses approached God and he was told, take off your shoes for you are standing on where you are standing, the place you stand in the presence of God is holy ground. We need to remember that when we approach God in our prayer. We're not talking to a friend or a neighbor. We are talking to an awesome, holy and majestic and a righteous God. And our attitude in that prayer must reflect that distinction. Then finally, we are to ask in the assurance that in spite of our unworthiness, God, for the sake of Christ, will hear our prayer. The third mark then of acceptable prayer is faith. Those who come to Jesus during his early ministry were told by Christ, let it be done to you according to your faith. Follow me now as we bring this all together. People of God, it is our own sinful and fallen condition that keeps us from trusting completely in God. It is our own sinful heart that prevents us from claiming God's promises in prayer. It is our own sin that robs us of the assurance of unanswered of answered prayer. It is our own sin that fills our hearts with doubts, even as we're forming our petitions in prayer. What now is the antidote to that? Faith in Christ. Because of our sinfulness, we need a mediator. Jesus Christ is the God-appointed and God-anointed mediator. Jesus is that God-appointed way to God. When we come to God through faith in that God-man mediator, Jesus Christ, we will be assured of the confidence that for his sake, God will hear and answer our prayer. Pray then to God in the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ. When your own heart and mind then fail you, when you are surrounded with the anxieties and fears of this world, then lift your eyes to Jesus. Look to him as your mediator, the only way to God, and you will immediately be granted the grace to pray without ceasing in the knowledge and the assurance that God, for the sake of his own son, will hear your prayer. One final interjection, not specifically addressed in the catechism, yet very relevant to the whole matter before us. The question arises, when we offer God acceptable prayer, does God always hear? Yes, indeed. But another question is, is such a prayer always effective? And the answer is still yes, indeed. But we need to understand carefully. There are people who tell us, especially certain holiness movements, but there are people who tell us that if only we pray enough, with enough intensity and with enough faith, God will surely grant us our request. 
How often does it not happen that during a time of personal crisis, efforts are made to form large prayer chains or groups so that much prayer can be offered? It is then implied that if only enough people with enough faith would pray, then God can be convinced and large groups of people are conscripted to a certain prayer requesting certain results from God. People of God, that's not the language of the Bible and God will not allow himself to be used that way. Oh, indeed, we know that upon the prayers of the disciples, Peter was miraculously released. Indeed, he was released by angels, no less, from prison. But do we not also read that John was later beheaded in spite of the prayers of the congregation? Oh, indeed, we read of many miraculous healings upon the prayers of the righteous. But do we not also read of some left in their infirmity, as, for example, the man of Miletus who was left sick by the apostle Paul? And that brings us back to our starting point. God knows our needs. Even before we ask, God provides all things needful for body and soul because God will provide and because God knows what is needed, God will still teach us always to temper our prayers with not my will, Father, but may thy will be done for only thy will is right and true and good and holy. It's not wrong to ask others to pray with and for us. It's not wrong to ask God's people to pray for miracles. But it is wrong when we seek a desired end without asking God that he would answer in his way, for his glory, in accordance with his will. Always, always our prayers must be concluded by expressing that it is our great desire that God's will may be done. To that end, in order that we would pray in a manner that is pleasing to God, our Lord teaches his disciples and us the way of true prayer, giving us this perfect model of prayer, that which has become known as the Lord's Prayer. May the prayer of our Lord become a great tool for us in the hands of the Spirit to teach us how to pray as we continue listening to our Lord's instruction on prayer. So why pray? So that in confidence we may have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. May it be so for each of us.